Turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. In the Church Bible, that's page 1239. And in the large print, 1922. While you're turning there, let me just mention that after today, we're going to be taking a three-week break from Revelation. We have the baptism service next week, and then Easter, and then I'm gone the Sunday after that. We'll plan to pick up after three weeks. But this morning, we're going to look at Revelation chapters 8 and 9. And I'm going to begin by reading both of those chapters. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sign them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torment, to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is God's word. Before we try to understand this, We need to remind ourselves where we are in this book. Last week in chapter 7, we saw the great multitude round God's throne. The entirety of God's people saved from every tribe and nation and every era of history. We saw them gathered at last in God's presence, entering into their eternal service for God and their eternal enjoyment of God. In other words, we have seen the end. We know how the story turns out for God's people. And the end of chapter 6 had already shown us how it turns out for God's enemies. 
It ends in terrible judgment for his enemies. So at this point, we might ask, well, where else is there to go? What more can happen in the rest of the book? The answer is there might not be anywhere else to go, but there's much, much more to see. A couple of weeks ago, I made the case that this book is not supposed to be understood as giving us one straight line through history. From Christ's resurrection straight through to his return. Instead, it gives us a series of trips through history. Like this. From chapter 6 onwards, the book covers the same ground several times but not in exactly the same way. Each time through, the picture builds, like colors being added one layer at a time. So what we're getting in these chapters is a series of progressive parallels. Chapters 6 and 7 have taken us on one trip through history. And now, as we look at chapters 8 and 9, we're going to retrace some of the ground we have already covered. But more detail is going to be added to the picture. You may remember in chapter 5, the lamb took the scroll from the Almighty's hand. There were seven seals on that scroll. And in chapter 6, the lamb opened six of those seals. No new seals were opened in chapter 7. But look what we read in chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. There have been different suggestions as to what this silence means. I think it's simply a dramatic pause. In chapters 6 and 7, John has been shown an overview of history. He's been shown both the wrath and the mercy of the Lamb. And now, before anything else comes at him, there's a pause to let it all sink in. For John and for his readers. In fact, most of the first century believers would have heard this before they read it. Their first exposure to John's record of his visions would have come when someone in the church stood up and read this aloud. So a pause would have been even more important in that situation. Chapters 6 and 7 are a lot to take in. You've had a whole week to get your breath back. And then, now that it's clear the seven seals are completed we're prepared for another series of visions. This time, seven trumpets. Verse 2, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Like the seals, these trumpets are going to unveil God's plans and purposes for history. But the trumpets have a particular significance. In the Old Testament, trumpets were blown to summon an army to war. And they also acted as a warning to enemies. 
Think of Israel's campaign against Jericho. We looked at that a few weeks ago on a Sunday evening in the book of Joshua. For six days, the Israelites marched around Jericho, blowing trumpets. Then on the seventh day, when the trumpets sounded, the city was destroyed. The first six trumpets were certainly a part of the battle. But they were also a warning to the people in the city. Seek mercy from our God. Well, you still can. Because there will be a final trumpet. And then it will be too late. The seven trumpets in Revelation are a bit like that. Chapters 8 and 9 give us the first six trumpets. They describe God's war against his enemies. But they're also a warning. Repent of your rebellion. Turn from your sin. Ask the Lamb for mercy. Because the seventh trumpet is coming. And then the chance for mercy will be over. So the trumpets sound for war and for warning. But before any trumpets sound, look at verse 3. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. This is the scene in heaven. Somewhere in front of God's throne, there is an altar. We're probably to think of it being at the foot of some steps that lead up to the throne. Because the angel is offering incense on the altar, which we're told then rises up to God. The NIV says the incense is offered with the prayers of God's people. But it's more likely this should be translated the smoke of the incense, which is the prayers of God's people. In fact, that's what we were told back in chapter 5. There, John saw golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So our prayers are pictured as incense rising up to God. Incense smells sweet. And the point is, our prayers are a pleasing offering to God. That should be very reassuring to us. God loves to hear from his people. And it is not only happy prayers that please him. In fact, these prayers are almost certainly not happy prayers. The only prayers we've actually heard in this book were in chapter 6. They were the prayers of the martyrs. How long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Those are not happy prayers. To some degree, those are prayers of confusion and exasperation. They're coming from people at the end of their tether. People who are watching their brothers and sisters suffer for their faithfulness to Christ. 
And considering how God responds to these prayers in chapter 8, they are almost certainly very similar prayers. They come from people who are not finding life to be a bed of roses all the time. They don't feel like dancing all the time. They are experiencing suffering. And they're crying out to their Father in heaven, how long? It's those kind of prayers that are rising like incense here. They're pleasing to God, not because of the suffering that gives rise to them. No, they're pleasing because they mean God's people are turning to him for help. There's an old hymn that says, Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. The Psalms say the same kind of thing over and over. Alan read a section like that earlier. The Psalms are full of human misery and concern that's being poured out to God. And that's no accident. God put them in the Bible to show us not only how to pray, but also when to pray. If you're a miserable Christian, God wants to hear from you. Don't wait until you're happy before you talk to him. Our Father in heaven loves it when we realize he's our only hope. He's pleased when we stop trying to struggle on by ourselves, when we stop looking for help in other places and look to him. The very act of taking your misery to him is pleasing to him. Our prayers are pleasing to God and he is pleased to respond to our prayers. Look at verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What does this tell us? It tells us the rest of chapters 8 and 9 are a response to the prayers of God's people. And yes, these things are also the eternal purposes of God. The Bible is not embarrassed to say God is sovereign and he responds to our prayers. And here we are shown this truth. These verses show us that the Almighty hears and acts. What follows then is part of God's war on behalf of his people and against his enemies. And this is also a warning to his enemies. Give up your rebellion. Lay down your arms. Come and find mercy while you still can. Back in chapter 6, we saw the four horsemen riding through history delivering the restrained wrath of the Lamb. What we find in chapters 8 and 9 is another look at God's restrained wrath in history. There's some overlap here with the work of the four horsemen. 
but new elements are added to the picture. What's new is, first of all, the focus on what we could call natural disasters. That's here in chapter 8. The other thing that's new in chapter 9 is the factor of demonic activity. So the next verses we come to, chapter 8, verses 6 to 12, deal with what seem to be natural disasters. The four horsemen showed us that human ambition and human evil can be God's way of delivering his wrath against human evil. And now here, it's creation itself that can deliver God's wrath. All of what we find here comes ultimately from the throne room of heaven. It is hurled on the earth from God's throne room. In Romans chapter 8, Paul said creation was subjected to frustration. And the one who subjected it was God himself. Paul goes on to say that creation groans waiting for Christ's return. And here in Revelation 8, we get a glimpse of how creation groans. Look at verse 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. One of the easiest ways to go wrong with the book of Revelation is to try and press every little detail of these visions and make every little detail literal. But when we looked at chapter 1, we saw that when John was writing, there was a certain genre of literature called apocalyptic. And in Revelation, God is using apocalyptic just as he uses poetry and history and letters in other parts of the Bible. In each case, God is delivering a unique message that comes with divine authority. But he's delivering that message in the packaging of different types of literature. And so when we read the book of Revelation, we must be fair to it as a piece of apocalyptic literature. We are not supposed to press every little detail. For example, we are not supposed to think Jesus looks like a lion and like a lamb and like a shepherd and that he has a sword coming out of his mouth. The book of Revelation tells us all those things about Jesus. And they're all telling us things that are true about him. But when we meet him, he isn't going to look like a lion or a lamb. And he isn't going to be carrying a shepherd's crook either. And when we read here in chapter 8 about showers of hail, fire, and blood, and then in the second trumpet about a blazing mountain being thrown into the sea, And then in the third trumpet about a falling star named Wormwood that turns the water bitter. 
Wormwood is a bitter plant. It's also known as absinthe, which is also the name of a French drink, which is very ironic, considering the effects that are mentioned here. When we read about all of these things, we're not supposed to ask, when did a star ever fall into the sea? Can stars fall into the sea? No, what we're getting here all adds up to a big picture of chaos and destruction in nature. Over and over, John says, I saw something like a mountain or like a torch. He's using comparisons. And all of it comes thick and fast to give us a sense of of upheaval and disorder in nature. And there are two key points for us to notice in this section in particular. First, these things come ultimately from God's throne. We noticed that already. Just as human greed and ambition can deliver God's wrath against evil, so natural disasters can deliver his wrath against evil. And the second key point is these things are not the end. What's being described here is not the final day of wrath. Again and again we're told they only affect a portion of creation. A third of the trees burn. A third of the ships are destroyed. A third of the waters are contaminated and so on. These are not the final upheavals we saw at the end of chapter 6. They certainly give us a sense of what that day is going to be like but only a faint sense. These are limited upheavals. We can see that in verse 12. Back in chapter 6, the whole sun turned black. Here, it's a third of the sun. And verse 12 proves that we're not to press these details too far. What does it mean for a third of the sun to be struck? It doesn't have a literal meaning. But it's an effective way of communicating horror and upheaval throughout creation. Earthquakes and tsunamis, volcanoes, forest fires, floods. Are those things just flukes of nature? Are they things that we can predict some of the time, but not all of the time? On one level, yes, that's what they are. But on another level, viewed from God's sovereign throne, there's nothing fluky about any of that. Those things are an expression of God's wrath against a rebellious world. They are the products of a creation that is subject to frustration because of human sin. Creation was not created this way. And in the future, it will not act this way. It will be set free from its frustration.
That's chapter 8. Then chapter 9 introduces another element into this picture of human history. It brings in the factor of demonic activity. We'll pick up at chapter 8, verse 13. John says, As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe! Woe! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth! Because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. The very end of chapter 8, the eagle cries, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. We've seen before, this refers specifically to those who are in rebellion against God. This woe is not for God's people to fear. But the eagle is making the point, if the groaning of creation is bad, what John is about to see is worse. And what John sees is a fallen star that turns out to be a living being of some sort person. We know that because this star is given a key. The person being described here is almost certainly Satan. Later on in the book, he will be described as having been hurled down from heaven. And in Luke's gospel, we're told about a conversation Jesus had with his disciples, and it helps us here. The disciples come back from a preaching trip and they say to Jesus, Lord, even demons submit to us in your name. And this is how Jesus replies to them. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Jesus' words there tell us two significant things. First of all, apparently it was during Jesus' ministry that Satan fell from heaven. He was defeated by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the second significant point here is that Satan cannot harm Jesus' disciples. Jesus' words are confirmed here in Revelation 9. We're told Satan is given a key. In other words, the key is not his. Whatever power Satan might have is power that is given to him. And we'll see later, it's a temporary power. And it does not include power over God's people. The key he's given here is the key to the abyss. In Scripture, that is the realm of the demons. It's their prison. They don't like to be there. In Luke's Gospel, in another place, Jesus casts demons out of the man from the Gerasenes. 
And the demons begged Jesus not to send them to the abyss. It's a place of torment. And here, Satan is granted from heaven a temporary power to release demons from the abyss. And they're described in verse 3 as locusts with the power of scorpions. Locusts are famous for destruction. That's probably all they're famous for. They devour things. But these locusts, which are actually demons, will not devour. They will sting like scorpions. Verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Real locusts do physical harm. They devour grass, plants, and trees. But verse 4 tells us these locusts do a different kind of harm. It's not physical, it's spiritual. They will inflict spiritual torment. That torment is compared to the sting of scorpions. And again, notice God's people are exempt from this. The locusts can only harm those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We saw in chapter 7, that is the people who are trusting in Christ. And that is exactly what Jesus said in Luke 10. On the screen. In his words there, Jesus was not promising his disciples they could mess with real snakes and scorpions and not get bitten. No, he was promising that the demons would not be able to harm them spiritually. Snakes and scorpions are used consistently that way in the Bible to refer to the devil or to demons. Here in Revelation 9, verse 5 says, these demons will not kill those they attack, but only torture them for five months. That seems to be symbolic for a finite period of time, a limited period of time. But we mustn't miss the most significant thing here. Who is God's greatest enemy? The answer to that is Satan. But who are the only people Satan and his demons can harm? The only people they can harm are God's enemies. The inhabitants of the earth who are in rebellion against God. Satan is not the ally of those people. He's not their mate. He torments them. In fact, that's the only thing he can do successfully on this earth. Torture God's enemies. Certainly he wages war on God's people, but it's a futile war 
Later in the book, we'll be told God's people triumph over Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Satan has no power over God's people. But he has a heyday with God's enemies. Of course, that's not how Satan is normally presented outside of the Bible, is it? He is popularly presented to us as the suave, sophisticated guy who will show us a good time. He's naughty, but nice, old Satan is. He'll help you to ditch God's repressive rules so you can really enjoy life. But the Bible says, don't be fooled. If you are living in defiance of God, Satan is not your friend. He is your tormentor. He is working to mess you up. Part of God's wrath against a rebellious world is to allow Satan himself to torture rebels. What form does that torture take? Well, we've seen that here it isn't physical. These verses show us that the destroyer rages through deception that leads to despair. Here's what Jesus said about Satan. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan deals in lies. That's his weapon. Any success he has comes through the power of his lies. Remember the first victory Satan ever had in the Garden of Eden. He won by the power and persuasiveness of his lie. You will not die if you rebel against God. You'll be like God. You don't need to fear God. You can be God. And what did Adam and Eve gain when they went with Satan's lie? They were tortured with shame and guilt. Their relationship with one another and their relationship with God were broken. The earth they were created to rule over rebelled against their rule from then on. They had to fight it even for food and crops. How does Satan torture people? He sucks them in with a powerful lie. And then he lets them suffer the consequences of falling for the lie. What's his big lie today? It's the lie of atheistic humanism. The lie that says there's no God. This world was not created by an intelligent being. You are nothing more than muscles, bones, and impulses. There's no higher authority in this universe. So live how you like. 
Make your own rules. It'll be great. You'll be free. It's a very persuasive lie. No one can tell you what to do. Most of Europe has fallen for it. All Satan has to do is sit back and let the consequences roll in. Consequences like sexually active children, giving birth to children, unwanted and unloved, sexually abused children, thousands and thousands and thousands of abortions, exploitation of women through pornography and trafficking, Young girls thinking the way you show your love to someone is by sending them a naked picture of yourself. A couple of weeks ago, it was World Book Day. And on World Book Day, a mother sent her son to school, primary school, dressed as one of the two main characters, the male character from Fifty Shades of Grey. I heard that mother being interviewed on the radio. She said she thought it was funny that he'd seen the book on her shelves and wanted to go dressed as a man who violently dominates a woman sexually. That mother is deceived by Satan. It sounds like fun. Ditch God and live how you like. But it leads to a living hell for millions and millions of people. Why is it we're seeing more and more cases of mental and emotional breakdown today? Do you think Satan's deception might have anything at all to do with it? What about people gorging on drugs and alcohol? And all the fallout that comes from that? Could the father of lies be at work somewhere in all of that? Verses 7 to 12 give us more description of these locust-like demons. We're told their faces resemble human faces. Their hair is like women's hair. They have teeth like lion's teeth and so on. Some of this is taken straight out of the book of Joel in the Old Testament. Out of the vision that Joel had. Some of it picks up on parts of a locust body that resemble these different things. Long antennae, like women's hair. Body sections that look quite like armor. And all together, the description emphasizes the fierceness and the horror of these things. And verse 11 says, They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon. That is, destroyer. 
That's either describing Satan himself or the one who commands Satan's troops. Either way, their aim is exactly the same. To destroy. And we discover they are permitted not only to torture, but also to carry out some destruction. Verses 13 to 19 seem to be showing us that the destroyer's deception ends in death. Have a look at verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. Commentators on this disagree over whether these are the same demons as the earlier verses, shown to us from a different perspective now, or whether these are human armies making war on the earth. If these are human armies, then this is something similar to what the four horsemen pointed to. So which is it? Demonic armies or human ones? Well, I think the crucial point is that these armies still have no physical power. Verse 18 says, they kill by the fire, smoke, and sulfur that comes out of their mouths. They don't kill with swords. They kill with what comes out of their mouths. The power here is still coming from the lie, from deception. And so these are, I think, the same demons we've been looking at in the early part of the chapter. Except here, they're no longer like locusts bringing torment. They're like an army on horseback bringing death. Verse 14 mentions four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. The fact that they're bound indicates they are also fallen angels, like the rest of those let out of the abyss. What's the significance of the Euphrates? Well, at the time John is being shown this, that's where the greatest enemies in history come from, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And in John's day, that's where the greatest threat to the Roman Empire came from from the Parthians. 
So the Euphrates represents a place where enemies come from. These angels at the Euphrates are bound. But at the precise hour, day, month, and year marked in God's timetable, they're released. And so we might wonder if this is a reference, this reference to the day and hour means we are seeing the end here. We might wonder if that's the case. But again, the destruction we read about is only partial. Verse 15 says, they kill a third of mankind. So the reference to time simply underlines God's sovereignty over all this. None of this happens a day earlier or later than God intends. Verse 16 gives us the number of this army. It adds up to 200 million. But the fact that it is not totaled up for us here indicates this simply stands for a massive number. It's massive because there's a massive number to kill. A third of mankind. What we are being shown here is that the lies of Satan that bring torment in this life, lead in the end to death. And the horror of that is that those who die in a state of rebellion have no more chance to repent. In other places, Revelation tells us about the death of God's people, but they are not included in this. This is Satan ushering God's enemies into eternity where there's no more hope of salvation. Again, we are seeing Satan is no friend to those who reject Christ. He loves to destroy and he is not picky about who he destroys. Satan will promise you the world. But if you fall for his lies, he will drag you to hell. All of this is part of God's war against his enemies. It's an expression of his wrath against a rebellious world. And... It's a warning. If you haven't come to the Lamb for mercy, this is God's call to see and understand and wake up. We might imagine that would be happening often, that many would run to the Lamb for mercy. But look at verses 20 and 21. These must be two of the most tragic verses in the whole Bible. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. 
nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. What these verses are showing us is that rebellion runs deep. Satan's lies have a strong appeal, even when all they bring is torment. Many people would rather hold on to the lie and give it another chance and another chance. They'd rather do that than bow before the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. No matter how screwed up their lives are, how many millions of people still want to be God? instead of taking off their crown and laying it at God's feet. Maybe we read this and we think, well, how many demon worshippers can there be in the world, really? If we counted only those who are intending to worship demons, then yes, the number is probably quite small. But the point here is that when we worship anything other than the one true God, whether that is our own bodies or our bank account or a wooden statue or a BMW or a human relationship, whatever it is, if it's not the Almighty we're worshiping, then we're worshiping the work of demons. Satan said to Adam and Eve, you will be like God. And Satan has been manufacturing false gods ever since. Telling us that good things are actually God things. And the tragedy here is that many people prefer the imitation to the real thing. They will cling to the imitation even when they're confronted with the real thing. When we come back to this after Easter, we'll see that God's people have good news to share in this situation. We are to be witnesses of the Almighty and the Lamb. We're to witness to the salvation of our God. He has made a way to be reconciled and saved from his wrath. But we have to be aware we are not witnessing to a neutral world. We're bringing good news to a world where many love the lie more than they love the truth. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But listen to John 3, 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. It's not too late 
The seventh trumpet hasn't sounded yet. But we have to grasp what's going on. This world is deceived. It's in love with Satan's lies. And so there's a cost for people to come to God. We have to give up the lies we love. Lies that say we can make the rules. Giving up the lie means bowing before the God who made us and saying, you are worthy of my soul, my life, my all. Maybe you need to say that for the very first time today. And maybe some of us have come to God But lately, if we're honest, we've been getting much too interested in Satan's lies. And so let's respond by recommitting ourselves to God. 